nothing like sharing a bedroom and sleeping together to bring to bring co-founders. I think um, it was a really intense time. We set the kitchen on fire and did some really stupid stuff during that time. And it was horrible, like going into that meeting, having pitched in person with no materials whatsoever for two hours. Lockdown eased, we had a lot of bookings all of a sudden, and then Christmas got cancelled. As a business, we got some momentum, we raised money, aired on Dragon's Den, we had lots of traffic, literally like the mic drop. This one was really bad. I think one of the mistakes we made, it was so demoralizing. Spoiler alert. Yeah, we ended up raising 1.1 million. What's the most popular celebrity menu, I want to ask you? Oh, but Jessica <laughs> Biel, um, sadly, we haven't cooked for yet. <laughs> In this episode, I interview Heinen Zhang, one of the co-founders of Why Hangry, which is kind of like Uber for private chefs, where you can book a private chef for any occasion from 30 pounds per person. So a really interesting concept. They've been through some serious highs and lows. Founded in 2019, so pre-pandemic, as you can imagine, they went through some serious turbulent times, but they also went through some great stuff as well. They went on Y Combinator, they've been on Dragon's Den. Spoiler alert, they walked away from the cash that was offered to them on the TV show, so stay tuned to hear more about that. And Heinen has just been so open with sharing the strategies and tragedies that have helped them grow their amazing startup business. Business. So let's get stuck in. All right, so we've done the sprint. We've compared relationships and now we get stuck into the podcast. Lots of it. Heinen, it's great to have you here on Strategy and Tragedy. Welcome. Great to be here. Fantastic. So you're the co-founder of Why Hangry, which is like the Uber for booking private chefs. You can book a private chef for any occasion from £30 per person. Is that correct? Yep, that's right. Amazing, amazing. And so you co-founded this back in 2019, pre-pandemic. You came from what I understand as quite a cushy corporate job beforehand. So pretty brave of you to take that leap and go into entrepreneurship, right? I think um, the reason why we came up with the idea, me and my co-founder, we were both working together on the trading floor. We were both lazy. <laughs> <laughs> so essentially, we loved having our friends over and throwing dinner parties. But the problem was always food. How are you going to feed people? And having come from developing countries, so she's from India, I grew up in China, it's common to have help at home because labor is more affordable and you can have a cook, a driver and these things. And we just thought it was 2019. There are amazing affordable luxury services like Uber. You can book a massage. You can book so many on-demand services. Why wasn't it easy to find a chef? Because we ended up having to either cook for our own dinner parties, which made them not happen, or order Deliveroo, which was a different experience. And we wanted fresh home-cooked food. We wanted, yeah, something a bit more than just takeaway. Amazing. And that's kind of where it started. And so was this a case of, you know, yourself and your co-founder wanted it as more of a personal use case? You knew that this was lacking. You'd seen it from different cultures. Was that kind of enough for you to, to make that leap, to launch into a startup pre-pandemic? Was it, Or did you do any more kind of market research or anything beforehand to really kind of validate the business idea? So a bit of both. So we initially started to solve our own problems. So we found our first chef and we started using that first chef for actually not just social gatherings, but 
more like meal prep as well. So we would get the chef, we would invite friends over, everyone would eat, and then there would be some leftovers for me to have over the next couple of days. Nice. So that was perfect. And then the friends that had experienced it were loving it and they said hey can i use your chef and we then realized oh wow we're not the only people with the problem and we started actually creating some sort of testing environment where we had this one chef and we started pimping out the chef to our colleagues on the training floor where we knew there were some people who recently had kids they had a newborn baby oh do you want to fill your fridge or freezer we can have a chef over who will cook for you it's going to cost this much and the feedback was really good so we kind of solved our own problem first and then we realized wow there is some demand for it why don't we do a little bit of testing and we did that luckily we were in a very good environment for it because there were lots of people who were earning a decent amount who are willing to, willing to throw money at solving their problems amazing and so, you know, today, fast forward about four years, I still don't think that booking a private chef for a dinner party is as commonplace as I would guess that it is in India, China, as you'd mentioned. And I think this is part and parcel of really innovative startups where there is not only all the usual hurdles of just building a business, but actually breaking through more of those cultural barriers or things that aren't kind of commonplace. So. You know, I guess one is, correct me if I'm wrong on that, and secondly, you mentioned you were lucky to have those colleagues with the disposable income. So is it something that's maybe more just for that particular niche, or I guess do you think that there is that opportunity for booking private chefs to become more mainstream in the UK at least? So the biggest condition for booking a private chef is having space. So what we realized is, yes, a lot of what you're saying is right, there is a bit of a stigma in the UK where anecdotally some of our first customers said actually requested the chef to leave before their friends arrived because they didn't want to seem too bougie. Mm, oh, I don't I know. I don't want my friends to see that I have a chef. Uh, I want to make it seem like I just did everything because that's just so fancy. Yeah. And it was someone who was living somewhere in East London. I remember looking at the postcode. I think it was around Victoria Park, like a nice area with now like decently priced real estate and everything mm. and i just thought okay the person is affluent ish but feels a little bit shy in terms of showing that they can book a private chef and a lot of it relates to the stereotype that private chefs are unattainably expensive mm. where only the rich and famous and the celebrities can actually afford a private chef which is very like people think that's the case. However, on the other hand, chefs are working at really low wages mm. at restaurants mm. where some chefs are really earning just above minimum spend. Yeah, it's and so true. And we kind of realized that there seems to be this dichotomy. Mm. We can easily find chefs that are affordable to maybe not everyone on a regular basis. However, when we look at our customers, when we look at repeat customers, yes, our ideal customer profile probably is the slightly more affluent category, especially people with young kids where having to sort out childcare is difficult. So being able to invite your friends over instead of getting a babysitter, then taking an Uber if you want a drink to a restaurant somewhere and then Uber back and so on from a cost perspective, it all checks out. Mm. But when we look at other customers, we have 22 year olds booking us in their student dorm that has a dining area for their birthday party. We've got chefs who have anecdotally told us that 
the less affluent customers actually tip more. And it's when they go to really normal households that they enjoy the booking the most because people are so amazed by the service and they're so grateful and just so interested in what the chef is doing. Whereas sometimes when they go to wealthier households, they barely interact with the person who treats them a bit like a servant. Right. So although we don't have as many high net worth customers as maybe like just middle class, upper middle class, affluent, who do not have a full-time private chef, for sure. Um, we have a broad range, and if it's for a birthday party once a year, anyone can spend 30 pounds per person, within reason, mm. to invite their friends or family. Yeah, it's interesting, as you mentioned, that dichotomy between the perception, definitely here in the UK, I totally get that, because it was definitely a thought that crossed my mind around like, oh, I don't know if I'd want other people to know, as you say, like, oh, I feel a bit bougie or you might think, oh, how much is she actually earning kind yeah. of thing versus actually, yeah, I'm, I'm also very aware of the fact that chefs aren't that well paid. So there is that interesting perception that, yeah, like actually it's something that's really bougie. I think the same with any other household service providers, whether it's having a housekeeper or maid or anything else. It's like, well, actually, if you do entertain the idea and sit down and look at the numbers it's actually not that crazy <laughs> and I think over the past let's say so I've been in London for 12 years now and I would say this was already the case when I moved here but I think over the past at least decade more and more people are having cleaners regularly without having to have a full-time cleaner whom they refer to as a maid mm. so I think that is permeating through at least London culture, mm. but I would say probably other areas as well. Yeah, you've just made me think as well about even the interior design industry. I know that in America, that's also very commonplace to book an interior designer, at least to consult on your interior, even if you're renting, even if you're renting an apartment or a flat, Whereas again here, it's like, wow, wow you, you need to have a that. <laughs> yeah. It's like, wow, whereas like I just go to Ikea and buy everything right. myself. And we're like, yeah, I think it's, it's more interesting. and more, these services are more and more popular and they're also more and more affordable. Yeah, exactly. So do you think that that's still a barrier to why Hungary's growth, and whether it's London or the UK, that perception, or are you finding that you're changing, changing that perception with your customers here? I think we are creating we've created something that's existed for a long time like we're not inventing something new private chefs have been around for a long time it's just that the connotation was different and from the data that we have um, shared by our customers we know that 70 percent of our customers had never booked a private chef before mm. and the reason why they are now looking to book a private chef are i guess manifold there are some macro changes we know that during the pandemic, more and more people had, to, actually everyone had to spend time at home. Everyone was locked down at home. And that has resulted in more people actually moving out from let's say zone one in London to like maybe zone three or four to be able to have a garden, to be able to have an office if they were working remotely from home and their companies didn't go back to having an office. So they need more space, especially if both partners work from home and so on. And as I mentioned earlier, space is a big condition for hosting, for inviting friends over. If you live in a, small apartment in London and you have a dining table that can seat four people, you don't need a chef. I think you can happily cook for three other people. And most of our bookings are for, let's say, an average 10 or 11 people. I think most recently it was 11, given the summer events were a bit bigger. But 
I think it really, you need a certain number in order to justify booking a private chef as well because the work becomes overwhelming. And so the space is a big factor, but also I think along with the cultural shift of using services like Uber. Previously, before Uber existed, I think not everyone who uses Uber would have used a black cab. So there are a few different factors that contribute to more and more people being open to the idea of mm. booking a private chef. Interesting, interesting. And I'm aware that you've got big plans to go out to other markets, but we'll, we'll come on to that in terms of, you know, what's next for Why Hangry. But for now, continuing on the chronological timeline of Why Hangry's amazing journey. So this was pre-pandemic, 2019, started this out. 2020 was uh, an interesting year for you guys, wasn't it? Besides COVID that affected everyone, was this also the year that you guys got accepted onto Y Combinator? No, sadly, only two years later. Right. I wish it was that year. Right. Because I wonder how it would have changed our business from like the get-go. But for 2020, um, it was a massive roller coaster. We had just quit our jobs end of 2019 and launched our very first basic that website in December 2019 wow. and then lockdown happened in February so it was literally only a few months yeah literally wow. we had a couple of bookings for Christmas in 2019 then Jan Feb there was stuff happening and all of a sudden in February cancellations started coming through we kind of had heard that there was something happening in China and all of a sudden lockdown was announced and you weren't allowed to see people anymore. And during that time, Sidi and I were seeing each other every day, working together either from her flat or my flat. And I ended up moving in with her and her now husband. So <laughs> favorite third For wheel. Third wheel situation. <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> so um, probably more of a partner to her than her husband, right? Like business partner, living yeah, together. Yeah, we also even shared so I they had a spare bedroom, which is um, helpful. Helpful. <laughs> However, because literally when I moved in, um, her husband got COVID and then he ended up quarantining in the master bedroom and we actually shared a bedroom. Oh my God, hair For is like a week <laughs> until he was better. So yeah. Nothing like sharing a bedroom and sleeping together <laughs> to bring to bring co-founders. Yeah, I think together um, more. Wow. that and then we didn't know how long the lockdown would be. Wow. And we ended up living together for bit more than three months wow amazing <laughs> it was a really intense time wow. where we just thought we didn't know whether our business would exist what we're going to do now so during that time we pivoted to virtual cooking classes we were doing we started the business because we didn't want to cook but we ended up cooking for i think 44 days straight on instagram lives wow. like the two of us like just cooking and i think we had very few viewers but we just stuck it out we're like we have to do this every day maybe we can grow our followers i think we did a little bit but it was so much fun we set the kitchen on fire <laughs> and did some really stupid stuff um during that time and yeah i think it's just really really great memories That's of so that time funny, which yeah. definitely helped us become even closer as friends as well as business partners because previously we were friends at work and we were work colleagues but then living together is a whole like takes it to a whole other level yeah absolutely i uh I think you're in a very tiny minority of co-founders <laughs> who have not only lived together, but shared a bedroom together. That's, <laughs> that's another level. Small subset. <laughs> yeah, 
exactly. So that was that was 2020, and yeah. you'd mentioned before, you know, with the different kind of variants, there was something with when when Omicron hit. To be honest with you, yeah. I pushed it out of my brain. Yeah. I completely forgot the names of all. I just don't even want to remember that. Smart. Time. <laughs> Smart. At some point, I actually stopped reading the news because everything yeah, was so negative. Just sick of it. So 2020, massive roller coaster. Yeah. Lockdown, lockdown eased. We had a lot of bookings all of a sudden. Oh, amazing. And then um, the second lockdown got announced. And then Christmas got cancelled yeah. that year. And anyway, it, and then 2021 was similar mm. where it was a lot of stop and go. Yeah. Where as a business, we got some momentum, we raised money, and then we um, aired on Dragon's Den. We had lots of traffic and then there was another like there were new household restrictions afterwards so right. those two years i look at and they this they seem really blurry in mm, my mind sure and in the end of 2021 i think that was q4 is when literally like the mic drop with omicron because that was the strain that hit us the worst all the other strains were kind of bad but this one was really bad pretty much all of the bookings like just got cancelled because everyone started getting Omicron because the virus was evolving so quickly wow. and people were getting um, infected more quickly, but it was less severe, but you were still not seeing people. So that one was really bad. Wow. And that was around the same time as we got in accepted into Y Combinator. Wow. So we actually got accepted into Y Combinator when we were on a high in like October, November, going into the Christmas season with lots of Christmas bookings getting placed and YC started in January. So between literally mid-December and January is when Omicron really hit. And then all of a sudden we were part of this program where there was a lot of accountability, amazing startup founders, amazing businesses. And every two weeks you were pushed to set goals for the next two weeks and report progress. And there was a traffic light system, like green if you achieve your goals, yellow if you kind of ish did. Oh no, green if you exceeded, yellow if you kind of achieved them and red if you didn't. And it was so demoralizing because at that time we felt like we didn't have any levers to pull because it wasn't natural for people to organize stuff if they weren't sure whether they're going to be sick mm -hmm. and wouldn't be able to do it. So they were just held off birthday plans. I mean, held off lots of different celebrations and we just missed all of our goals. Whereas and it was horrible, like going into that meeting every two weeks thinking, oh, what did we do? OK, no, like we did a bit of this, we did that, but not really what we wanted to achieve. And around the time we managed to kind of look at the business in a different light and realize that we had previously received a lot of feedback that we didn't go deeply into. So we spent time doing that, which ended up in us changing the model mm. because we realized that there was there were certain issues with our previous model that led to the experience being not as good as it could be for the customers as well as the chefs. Mm. And we dug a bit deeper and we realized, wow, there are certain changes we can make. Let's do that. And we did that throughout kind of end of Jan, Feb into March. And with also COVID easing and our new model from then on, it just became so much better. And we kind of yeah, had our really deep trough and that's when it started going um, 
how do you say that going Upwards, back up again, yeah, Upwards coming, again? Yeah, exactly. coming back stronger wow that's amazing yeah what comes to mind is that classic diagram of the line chart you know the reality of the ups and downs yeah. of being a founder which we all know but this particular I guess even three month period for you of the high of getting accepted to Y Combinator, the low of Omicron hitting and everything completely drying up, then being on the program, which sounds so exhilarating and helpful, but then the, de as you say, demoralize, the demoralizing feeling of going into those meetings. And it must've been even more frustrating as a founder where you feel like you are in charge, it's your business, you're master of your own destiny. And yet, despite everything that you're doing, it's not changing the yeah, results. Yeah, you're not moving the needle. So frustrating. But congratulations for coming out stronger. And what a fantastic lesson in there as well to actually say, okay, this sucks. This isn't working <laughs> out. But what can we take from this? And you use that time to dive into the feedback and pivot. Quick fun fact. Did you know that the annual spend on outsourcing and hiring agencies is $900 billion this year alone? That's why I'm so proud to collaborate with 50pros.com, a new and fast-growing platform that connects highly vetted agencies with companies looking for their next marketing partner. If you've ever had to source your own agency before, then you'll know unless you've had a good referral, it can be like trying to find a needle in a haystack. That's why with 50pros.com, they provide you with a curated, vetted, no-noise directory of only the top 50 firms within 50 categories. Head to the link in the show notes, 50pros.com, and I really hope this helps you get it right with your next marketing partner. All right, let's get back to the show. So was that feedback from the mentors on Y Combinator that helped you? Definitely. Wow. They asked amazing questions. Really? Yeah. So... One of the biggest changes um, we did was we stopped doing the grocery fulfillment. Um, back in the day, our model was a managed marketplace model, which means that the customer will choose what they want to eat. And then we assign the chef, we order the groceries, the groceries arrive, then the chef comes and cooks everything. Now, our model is different. The customer will choose the chef and the chef will create a special menu for that person. It's more bespoke. It's The menus are more unique, although you can request a menu that a celebrity has had if you wanted to. Oh, cool. Um, but it's not standard, off the shelf. These are the Why Hangry menus and any chef can cook them. So this is one way in which the model has changed because customers ask to be able to select and choose their chef rather than getting assigned a chef and they know nothing about the mm -hmm. stranger who is coming to their home. What's the most popular celebrity menu, I wanna ask you just quickly. Oh, so a lot of Made in Chelsea um, influencers and a lot of the cast, they have used us and people will ask us, oh, I saw you guys on um, Zara's or Louise's, Binky's like story, what did they have for this event? <laughs> like, can I book the same one? So they're really, really popular. So it's actually, so it's the Made in Chelsea lot as opposed to like A-list celebrities that yeah. some are ordering like so, Jessica Biel's yeah, menu. Yeah, so <laughs> Jessica Biel, um, sadly we haven't cooked for yet, <laughs> but it's, um, We've worked, luckily, with amazing celebrities in that sense, right. like from, let's say, reality TV shows right. who live in London nice. and who have a lot of followers and influence. And every time we do, 
we get so much Fantastic. out of it, which is amazing. Amazing. And just again, out of curiosity, while we're on this, did the Made in Chelsea lot, did they find out about you organically or did you approach them to? So um, a bit of both. So I'm just thinking, so Ollie Locke is one of our angel investors. Uh, okay. And he found out about us organically. Oh, wow. He somehow found out about us. I need to look into like the first message right? or maybe we reached out to him. I don't remember. It was like, so yeah, long ago. Amazing. And then at some point he reached out saying how much he loves the idea. And then when we were raising, we told him and then, yeah. And, and now obviously thing. he's opened a lot of doors. Yeah. And obviously like a lot of people know that he's involved. So Yeah. One thing leads to another. I guess that goes to show again the value of the right investor if they can unlock Network, yeah. introductions. It's not just the money that they bring to the table. So that's fantastic. So let's digress. We were on kind of the YC. I kind of took us off path a little oh, bit. Yeah, the, was there. Our model changed a lot. Right. So going back to the model. Yeah. So now like customers choose which chef they like the most right. based on they can read reviews they can see photos of their food they can see their menus prices location all of these factors um and then the chef will buy and bring the groceries yeah, great. so we don't have to deal with those logistics anymore yeah. which were a complete nightmare it was yeah. like trying to build hello fresh within why hangry right right exactly <laughs> it was awful and as you mentioned the grocery fulfillment side of things i mean bloody hell like 2020 <laughs> it was like jesus every every Tom, Dick and Harry is delivering groceries to your front door. We suddenly had gorillas, get here. Can't remember the names of all of them. It's just like, this is just not, I'm not a professional investor, but I can already see this space is, all, is very crowded. It's, it's already getting crowded here. So um, that makes a lot of sense. So well done. So that was, you know, came out stronger from, from YC. So that was amazing. And you mentioned within there very briefly that I want to make sure that we come on to Dragon's Den. Yes. So was this during, what time period was this then? Was this all mixed in there with everything? So we pitched in Manchester in the BBC studios in November 2020. Literally the day the second lockdown was announced, 5th of November, I think. Wow. And then our episode was aired only like ages later, like more than half a year, I think. Uh -huh. Yeah, so it was aired in May 2021. Right. So... There was a long gap in between, but and during that gap, we didn't actually know whether we would get aired or not, because you kind of go in good faith, hoping obviously like A, that you get an offer, B, that you might get a deal and see that you will get aired whenever the next season will air. And because of COVID and everything, they just weren't sure, but they were just filming all the content. And um yeah, so... So what was that like then, the experience? So this was around, the, so you were doing... I don't even know how co-founders like you make the time to not only run and build the business, but also just like the applications to all these things as well, right? Like applying to Y Combinator, applying to Dragon's Den, it's just never ending, isn't it? But congrats, <laughs> you made it onto both of these things. So you made it onto YC, you made it onto Dragon's Den. So what was that process like? Uh, it was such an amazing experience. Right. It was so professional, like the whole like, process was really impressive Super slick. and we were being asked to produce certain things for the first time and we we're like oh my god wow like they're so professional checking everything it's like oh where do we get this from where do we get this from right. that was a really really good experience and then pitching itself it was nerve-wracking really but fun at the same time because it wasn't alone i think being able to 
walk in there together or do the trip together. Actually, it was three of us. So it was City, me, and our very first employee, who was one of our early chefs. And we, the three of us, took the train up together. We stayed in the Airbnb, and the chef was preparing stuff overnight, whereas we were like looking at the numbers, studying, remembering things, because we know we'll get grilled on those. And then, yeah, yeah. the next, and then oh, the Airbnbs, the oven didn't work which was needed and a few other issues but anyway like it all worked out in the end so we walked into the den together with the chef serving like a beautiful three-course canapé meal and us pitching so it sounds like, like we're going in as a team yeah. as opposed to like having to step in alone well I was just gonna say it sounds like the most perfect team building experience in itself an away day to Manchester and and on some top issues of, <laughs> some problems to solve figure them out together teamwork but yeah. you know throw you into the fire and it also sounds like probably like best training ground for pitching to VC I mean obviously you're pitching to angels the dragons on the show but also as you say that prepping all the numbers and the figures and it's so nerve-wracking you're on tv you got the cameras and everything as well so I imagine that then pitching to VCs on a standard zoom call must have felt like a walk in the park you completely nailed it right I feel like having pitched in person with no materials whatsoever for two hours wow actually the pitch was like a minute but we were being asked questions for another like almost two hours afterwards from the dragons yes yes wow. because they are making real investments yeah and they don't know anything about the wow. company before so they what meet gets the founders what gets edited on tv is such a the yeah. tip of the iceberg yeah wow. it's honest i think our episode was 12 or 13 minutes long yeah but we were in there for i think it was more than two hours wow that's so interesting i mean i'd always imagined that obviously the real thing is much longer but how can they make an investment yeah, yeah just of based on like these <laughs> whatever questions that get aired so that was really such a tough experience that actually pitching to anyone else mm. doesn't quite compare especially yeah. if it's a zoom call you're not standing there they're sitting it's a very different power dynamic as well you have nothing whereas they're scribbling their notes or on a zoom call like you can have everything in front of you if sure, you wanted to sure. and just look anything up or run through a pitch deck during the meeting exactly it's very yeah. different of course and so for anyone who hasn't seen the episode of you on dragon's den so did you get offered investment what happened then spoiler alert yes we did um <laughs> spoiler alert i mean it's the episode came out two years ago so maybe it's not a spoiler <laughs> alert anymore but um yeah we got um offers and we struck a deal and who did you get the offers from sorry tej and peter tej and peter okay, yes cool. so they were the two dragons that we really wanted amazing and we ended up yeah presenting our business in a certain way that actually they found um great so that was awesome Fantastic. how much did they offer you so a hundred thousand each um no together. we wanted to raise a hundred thousand together so Me. they ended up um they initially both offered us the money uh -huh. and then we made them kind of combine right and join forces amazing but you decided to not actually accept the cash from these two tv dragons den investor stars what was that about so we realized after uh, Dragon's Den that maybe we overestimated the amount of value that they could add to the business. If we were a product, let's say, that should be shelved in a supermarket and 
I mean, it would be a no-brainer. Like immediately, like we would get so many sales. But with our business, it's a little bit different. And we then just thought back and forth, hmm, maybe that's not the right way for us. And maybe we should be looking at other investment um, channels. Wow. So so where did you go from there then? Did you get other invest other angels, VCs? What happened next? So we then ended up Oh, and by the way, sorry, were they offended when you then walked away afterwards? What was the response no, from them? No, they weren't <laughs> offended at all. They were like, fine, we'll keep the cash. <laughs> <laughs> it was actually very, very amicable. I think it's not as uncommon that you go into the den and you're like really nervous. You're, as an entrepreneur, you've just been grilled and you're like, oh, okay, like I'll just do it or I mean deals fall through for many different reasons sometimes as well like in the due diligence process the investors will look at things and realize hmm, okay like I actually thought it would be different and stuff doesn't end up happening yeah so but it is quite rare for the founders to be the ones turning down the angels afterwards maybe <laughs> maybe okay but that that's what you did and so yeah. then you went on to look for yes. funding from somewhere else yeah, so we then ended up um, getting funding from VC angels and as well as friends um, who we previously worked with. Because when we left, a lot of our finance friends had said that, hey, we would love to support you. And um, yeah, we ended up raising um, 1.1 million wow. with the biggest um, ticket coming from one of our customers, actually. Wow. Yeah, so we had an early customer who I think was beginning of 2020, literally before the lockdown, had a chef cook for them physically in their home. And then during the lockdown, organized four or five different virtual cooking classes with our chefs and their friends to do something social. And they emailed us and I think after the first event even said, wow, I thought this was such a great experience. You made it so easy to find a chef. Let me know if you ever need investment and a year later when we raised in I think early 2021 we started the process we got in touch and they were interested amazing I guess it makes a lot of sense if someone has had that direct experience with the product they've used it they've loved it they really believe in it. So that's fantastic. What a great result. And so this is all kind of you know from the early day you know we covered getting started going through COVID, then Y Combinator, Dragon's Den, all these cool things. So let's bring it up to speed. So how's how's Y Hungry doing at the moment? I know you've got big plans coming up next, so we'll look to the future. But in the here and now, what's current? How, how's it currently doing? I think we have such an amazing team right now and a lot of stuff is happening. And it just feels like every day, like you're having your head down, you're working because we've got goals we want to hit. And it feels like the is there a saying that the engine is rolling it's or really like the, revving, co the, yeah. the cogs the are, cogs are turning the cogs are turning yeah. the cogs are turning yeah. which feels really great because unlike when it was quite tough for us during yc when we felt a little bit helpless mm. without um knowing how we could change things now it feels like we know what we can do mm. and we know what we must do mm. and we know how to do it. Wonderful. So we just need mm. to work hard in order to get things done. I love that. And that just feels so empowering, which is, I think, which makes everyone really happy because it's helplessness that makes 
uh, that is demoralizing and you don't think you're moving the needle like you're doing a lot of stuff because we're always working hard but we're not seeing anything forward whereas now it feels like right we're doing things and Keter is paribus like there is a result for it yeah I love that that's fantastic it's when you when you're directionless when you still haven't I guess nailed the product market fit and like is this paying off is and it's so energy consuming to definitely run and build a business that I love I love what you've just described there with like we know where we're going we know what we need to do now all that we need to do is put in the hard work to actually make it happen yes so that's fantastic and I'm aware that so you know you secured some some funding so congratulations on that obviously it's been a tough past year 18 months for the startup ecosystem with everything happening now um, I'm aware that you've kind of you've you really managed to kind of manage the finances in a really kind of lean way you've got quite a runway ahead of you so congratulations on that you mentioned you kind of got two three years ahead of you what I'm very curious about is how do you find the right balance between maintaining the leanness the efficiency to make sure that you've got the two to three year runway coming up versus being a bit more I guess ballsy or a bit more of a risk take and investing a bit more in a campaign or, or doing something that might also kind of boost it like I guess that that risk appetite how do you how do you find the right balance between between those two ends of the spectrum yeah so I think um so there are two different things um that you can spend money on um, in a startup. One is marketing and the other one is the team. Maybe you can spend money on other things as well, but those are the two main things that I <laughs> think we spent money on. And for the team, actually, we found a really great formula or we found it. I think one of our YC partners in one of our office hours just mentioned like, okay, great, you're at this kind of um, level now. So in order to continue being prudent, but also grow, it's like every 30K of um, revenue or like uh, GMV, you can add another headcount that basically pays for it. So we have, we obviously look at our growth and whenever we have grown a certain amount, we realize, oh wow, we just earned ourselves another headcount. So let's start looking for another role because as a team, there's always more to do. We never have enough hands on deck, but when the revenue gets to a certain level, we realize, okay, now we've gotten to the stage where without increasing our burn rate, we can actually add another person. Fantastic. So for, um, for like, the, like the team side of things, it's quite simple. And on the like, marketing side of things, what we started investing in is SEO, which is hopefully longer lived. Who knows what's going to happen with ChatGPT and BARD and whether that's going to change, obviously, paid search. But um, previously, we were using channels like Facebook ads and Google ads. And the moment you switch them off and stop paying, you get nothing. Yeah. And I think one of the mistakes we made is that we didn't invest in SEO early enough. And in hindsight, if I were to start another business, I now know to maybe do that a little bit earlier on because it takes a while for it to pay off. But when it does, it's long lived mm. and hopefully like forever you need to maintain some things. But anyway, so um, we decided to do that and we decided to also improve our website UX and UI to increase conversion rates. So that's another way to that's that's a bit more organic than just pumping ad spend yeah so when it comes to growth initiatives or marketing initiatives we try to actually look at the ones that are 
have a longer shelf life. Yeah, I'm so glad that you mentioned that genuinely because I just think that there does need to be more of an awareness and a deeper appreciation for those longer tail marketing activities. It's, it is easy, you know, I do understand with founders, it's your own capital, especially if you don't come from a marketing background, it, you know, you want that reassurance and Google, Facebook, Meta, they make it as easy as possible for you to spend their money with them. Like, yeah. let's not forget they're the biggest tech companies for a reason. 80% of their annual revenue comes from the advertising. So you're continuing to line the pockets of Mark Zuckerberg and, you know, Alphabet, but you've completely hit the nail on the head as well with like, once you switch it off, it's, it's an on and off of the tap. Yeah. And it's, you know, I think I love that you say, you know, well, if you were to start again, you'd you'd prioritize those earlier, those longer tail activities to get started sooner. But I think more and more founders need to realize that because they just I think there's that nervousness. They don't they want those instantaneous results. It's difficult. It you is want, difficult. Like results immediately. Yeah. And you only have, let's say, limited runway if you had, I don't know, a few months to prove something. Yeah. You rather just want to have a quick MVP. Get the quick buck in. Exactly. Yeah. Get some money in immediately yeah. and also get some feedback in. So it, I totally understand why we decided. Yeah, yeah. When we decided not to actually pursue SEO, but yeah, yeah I feel a bit smarter now. <laughs> <laughs> I think starting up your own business is, uh, is like a very expensive MBA. I think everything, <laughs> all the lessons you can learn from actually doing it for real and rolling up your sleeves and getting stuck in. So yeah. I'm glad there's, there's a lot of real lessons life taken MBA. in. Yeah, yeah, real life MBA. I love that, I love that. And so um, so looking ahead then, so I meant, I've kind of hinted at this a few times. So what are your exciting plans for 2024 and beyond now? So our next goal will be to expand globally with the US to start and in order to get there, we need to do a bunch of things. So yeah, so we are right now in execution mode and working towards that. Exciting. Have you got a few locations that you're prioritizing? We've got a few that we're thinking of, but we haven't actually created um, any set list yet because mm -hmm. I think we know vaguely what we're doing, but at the same time, I think as an early stage startup, it doesn't make sense to create any plans that exceed more than six months or even three months because so much changes. And I was speaking to someone recently who said that at their startup, and it's a bigger startup, um, they have 12, months pla 12 month plans, but they revise them every six months. So the first six months is high conviction, the second six months is low conviction and most likely actually 90% of the time will change when they revise the 12 month plan in six months again for sure and it feels like for us maybe that's like three months and six yeah. months <laughs> and so it's creating a list now with having done very little research to be honest um, because we're spending our time executing and actually growing the business now mm. and fixing certain things that we need to do it's something that we'll do cross when we that cross bridge, that bridge when yeah. you get to it. Yeah, of course, that makes sense. So are you hiring people on the ground locally in these places or um, still all kind of still a bit gray at the moment? Yeah, I think we are um, a remote first but hybrid team. So everyone's around or most people are around London and we work 
from home. Mm. But on average, we probably meet up once a month, mm. either for social or ad hoc if we need to do some in-person brainstorming. It's not the same as doing it on Zoom. Mm. As good as like some of the tools are, it's different to have people's brains active and people going back and forth in one physical space. So we do that and we think it's a good setup. So when it comes to expanding, we know that yes, we can grow a team remotely. So maybe we don't need to hire someone on the ground. However, we also do see the value of when people get together and that it really helps in creating like a team atmosphere and somewhat of a culture rather than just knowing people on Slack mm. and mm. on calls. Yeah, but I guess of course you got to balance it with the practicalities of the finance and it also all the rest of it. On the right person who that hire would be and yeah. the role. Yeah. So Ooh. I think we'll worry about that later. Yeah. <laughs> all sounds very exciting. So my last question for you, Heinen, thank you so much. It's been really interesting hearing more about the story and the ups and downs along the way. This uh this is called the Strategy and Tragedy podcast, partly because I believe that the best lessons can often come from our biggest mistakes or tragedies. What is a Tragedy, you may well have already covered this because we've gone through the highs and the lows, but what's a tragedy that's happened with Why Hungry that's really taught you the biggest lesson? I think um, tragedy, I'll say mistakes, maybe. I think one of the biggest mistakes that we made is that we priced ourselves the product too low when we launched. We were, I think, not super confident to stick a high price tag on it and we're like oh that seems expensive let's maybe we just go for the lower option and we we knew at the time that uber actually started with uber black before rolling out uber x but we approached it the other way we started our first product focusing on our equivalent of uber x instead of the more premium market and we actually now have slowly changed because we've learned more about our customers. We initially thought, oh, like everyone will book Why Hangry all the time, but then we realized you need space and most likely you need to have a little bit more disposable income to be a regular customer, which we obviously want to acquire more of. And, and we've realized now that in hindsight, yeah, if we n knew it earlier, it would, it's always diff um, easier to lower your prices than to increase them. Yeah, exactly. That is a fantastic lesson. That makes a lot of sense and hopefully a lot of founders listening to this will will take that on board with them as well Heinen it's been an absolute pleasure congratulations on making it through the tough times and coming out stronger than ever before with Why Hungry I wish you all the best of luck and thank you so much again for coming on the podcast thank you so much for having me this was so much fun <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like really buzzed <laughs> that's just down to the sprint uh, it has long lasting effects those endorphins <laughs> That's what I like to bring to the table, <laughs> the step endorphins. Yes. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. It really helps me out. Thanks a lot. Take care.